Hello and welcome to the podcast of Vineyard Church here in Maryville, Tennessee. We post our Sunday messages here each week, as well as our conversations episodes, which include interviews, special announcements, and in-depth teaching. You can visit vineyardchurch.us to learn more about us or to access the audio archive. You can also subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Apple, or Google Podcasts. And now, here's the episode. Okay, uh, we started this series uh, last week. It's just a two-part series, so we wrap it up today. We've been talking about different postures we tend to have in how we relate to God. What is the fuel that motivates us spiritually that gets us moving forward? And we, um, we said from this book with, which is written by Scott Jastani, that we've been looking at <clears throat> as a little, bit of a little bit of a cheat sheet for us as we worked our way through, that there are four postures uh, in how we tend to relate to God, and, and he offers a, a fifth one that's more biblical, which is life with God. Um, uh, but the first two we looked at last week, just by way of review quickly, we talked about the life over God posture. Uh, the life over God posture is this sort of framework where we, we pick and choose from biblical principles or biblical teachings or biblical ideas um, as it will be fitting for us and what we believe that we need in the moment. And so what we said is that's a lot like going through a buffet line. You literally look over the buffet and you take what you want, you leave what you don't, you pick and choose based on the outcome that you're uh, hoping for. Um, and so that's sort of the life over God posture. Um, and then that posture is often contrasted with the life under God posture and uh, that framework. And that's more like using a cookbook where it's like God gives us the instructions and then you follow the instructions. And the better job you do at that, the closer you are to uh, executing the directions in the cookbook the closer you are to doing that right, the better your result or your outcome that you get. You just trust the recipe, you follow the rules, and the outcome tells you everything you need to know. If you did a good job, you get a good result, you get a good meal. If you don't, then you don't, and you know that you didn't. So uh, what we saw last week is that both of these are actually deeply flawed ways to approach God. Um, You can have the life over God posture, that's the buffet approach, and more often than not, and this is confusing, more often than not, it'll work. Like these are principles. We think about God giving us principles and going to scripture for principles to improve our lives. Well, you can find that. The Bible gives very good and helpful wisdom. And so if you look to scripture for that buffet of advice, you'll get good advice. And so that feels like a win. The problem, as we saw last week, is you can do all that and you can, you can take all those things from scripture. Um, you can do that without a single ounce of affection for Jesus. You can do that without pledging your allegiance to Jesus at all. Um, In that setup, God is just a means to an end. God is a, it's a good life strategy, um, but it doesn't mean affection for the Lord. Um, And then we've got the life under God posture, which is contrasted. It sounds way better. It sounds way more pious and, and right. Uh, but God as cookbook does not work either. And here's why very simply it inevitably backfires because sometimes you follow the instructions, you get the recipe, you nail it, you follow it to a T and even though you did it just right, you still get bad results. 
And as a result, folks with the life under God posture often feel squashed by God under God. And they're often left feeling angry with God and feeling bitter or betrayed by God. They feel abandoned by God. And this is the, this is the pushback. It's like, God, I was good. I followed the recipe to a T. I was good, but the results were not good. So now, God, you've got some explaining to do. I kept up my end of the deal. You didn't keep up your end of the deal. What both of these reveal is a fundamental misunderstanding of what the actual prize of our faith is. As we said last week, the invitation isn't life over God. It is not life under God. It is life with God. It's not a buffet. It's not a cookbook. It is instead, picture it, Jesus the King in your kitchen, smiling at you saying, all right, come on in. Let's, let's make something good. Let's do something together. Let's do something that matters. Let's do something well. Let's do it together. All right. So um, that was last week. Last week we said there were four postures. As you can see, we've only talked about two. So today we'll quickly look at the last two. Uh, the first today and the third overall is from life from God. Um, the life from God is pretty much a combination of the over and under postures. And basically, this is, this is the God as vending machine disposition. Okay, so think about the, the buffet approach means we pick what we want. The cookbook approach means we get results by following the instructions. The vending machine approach says we pick the desired results and then we follow the instructions to get the results. So imagine going to a vending machine, picture the big old clunky thing there in front of you, and you go, okay, what is it that I need from the Lord? It's like, I want... Financial security. Who doesn't want financial security, right? So which one? You look it up. That's D6. Oh, no, D7. I almost picked patience. Never ask God for patience. Uh, D7, I want financial security. Okay, and what does that cost? What do I do to get that? So you choose D7, and you go, okay, to get that, I have to put in uh, tithing and generosity and church attendance. Boom, you slide that in, and you wait for the results. Or you come to the vending machine and you think, I want, I want wisdom and direction. I don't know what to do. There's, I could go left. I could go right. I can't figure it out. I need the Lord to tell me. So what do I need to do in order to get that from the machine? Okay, I have to plug in uh, Bible study and prayer, and I have to get some godly counsel. Awesome. So you put that in the machine, and then you just wait for it to come. Just wait for that little corkscrew to turn to release the goodie that you're after and, and hope to God it doesn't get stuck. When it, you know how that happens? It's an interesting thing, just little observations about humanity. Some of the worst behavior I've ever seen in the world is when people don't get what they want from the vending machine. Have you noticed that? People lose their minds. Um, for some people, that's their thing. Just go, they go full Hulk. And I try to give them the benefit of the doubt. And I'm like, it's probably a diabetic thing. Like they maybe really, really need that Snickers. But the truth is, they're just coming unglued. And that's okay. We all have, I think, the thing that sets us off. You know, like the thing that you have the disproportionate, irrational response to. You want to know mine? Uh, mine is when you go to the car, usually with my family, i.e. the people I love the most in this world and cherish the most in this world. I go to unlock the door, and as I unlock the door, they're pulling on the door handle, and so the unlock doesn't work, which we all understand. That's how this works. 
but they just keep lifting on the handle and I keep pushing the button and it keeps not working and I just see red. It makes me so irrationally angry and I scream at my children and, and I think worse things. I'm like, just put your... Put your stupid hands in your stupid pocket. Like, we know, just wait till I hit the, can you wait? Anyway, it's completely irrational. Like, one time and I am seeing red. For some people, it's the vending machine thing. It gets stuck and they didn't get it. And you see, like, tiny people rocking the machines and people lowering a shoulder and reaching their hand up there. Like, don't reach your hand up there. If you've ever seen a sitcom, you know it's going to get stuck up there. So, anyway, just this weird Weird dynamic. Well, why? Why why that intense response? It's entitlement, isn't it? It's, no, no, no. I hit the code. I put in what it said to put in. The other side of that arrangement is it spits out what I wanted. I'm owed this. And so it's a sense of justice and a sense of entitlement. And if we have the life from God posture where he becomes purveyor and distributor of that which we need, then we inevitably end up with that sort of vending machine level of frustration as well. Let me read you a quote from the book. We see a divine butler, a cosmic therapist, a holy vending machine who dispenses the wares and wisdom they desire. This is the essence of the life from God posture. God exists to supply what we need or desire. And although my tone may already be dismissive, there is some merit to this view of God. Scripture reminds us repeatedly that all we have comes from God. Everything that lives draws its life from God. And he is the father of lights from whom comes every good gift and every perfect gift. And Jesus calls us to ask God for what we need. But the life from God posture overemphasizes the single aspect of the divine human relationship. It makes receiving God's gift the entirety of our religious lives. I don't think it's too hard to see how we might fall for this. I know I do sometimes. The Bible talks about, again, as you just said, it has our source for everything good. The Bible talks about cause and effect. You know, you reap what you sow. For us to make the sleep, very understandable. It's also, if you're with me, it's, then definitely it's not going to be hard to see how this misses the point, though, and how it actually misses out on all of the best stuff. Because all of the best stuff is not the stuff that comes out of the machine. The problem with this, is, and you see it, it's purely transactional. It's just, it's, we provide, you know, religious goods and services, and, and God steps in as divine purveyor, and he distributes what we need, based on what we offer. That is cold. It is lifeless. It's a purely consumer relationship. It's a stretch to call it a relationship at all. And as we kind of move in that vein, I mean, you can almost hear God interrupting in the midst of the transaction to say, no, 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 wait. No, you, you missed the most important part. You missed the best part. Me, God would say, you're missing me. Remember this, this isn't a, a transaction. This is a love story. God's saying, I love you. Remember, I died to rescue you because I love you and you're my children and you're my poetry and you're my heart and you're my beloved and I'm supposed to be your beloved. Remember, like everything in scripture, every page of scripture rails against this idea of a transactional, consumeristic, materialistic relationship to God. And yet, it's so easy to slide right into it. Um, 
Matthew uh, 13, verse 44, this is Jesus telling a parable. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that a man discovered hidden in a field. In his excitement, he hid it again and sold everything he owned to get enough money to buy the field. This is Jesus saying, no, the things of the Lord are actually more important than all the other things combined. And he tells the story of the guy who sold everything he had and he bought the field. But the point wasn't the field. He didn't buy the field so he could have a field because there was a treasure in the field. In that field, there was a treasure and that was everything his heart desired. And Jesus says, I'm the treasure. I'm the treasure. It's not about anything else that might come from the relationship down the line and lots of wonderful, beneficial things come in life with God. He goes, but the actual prize, the actual treasure is to be with me. No one understood this better than the Apostle Paul. Um, so I'll read you a couple verses from Philippians. He writes this from a prison. He says, I once thought these things were valuable. Here's these things he's referring to mostly to sort of religious externalities and materialism. I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage. This is really strong language. The Greek's actually stronger. Counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. That's the treasure. I want to be one with the king. And the life from God posture, it misses the joy of actually knowing God. And knowing God is the point. That's the treasure. Everything else Everything else is secondary. At best, it's tertiary. It's, everything else is trimmings. Okay? The prize is life with God, hour by hour, day by day, left foot, right foot, walking with Jesus. Okay, and then the final default posture, and I want us all to sort of lean in on this one, uh, is life for God, which that really sounds right. Life for God. And in some sense, it is, right? We do live our life for God. That's not saying it's just absolutely wrong. I, uh, I love the John Wimber quote where he says, I'm, I'm loose change in God's pocket to be spent however he sees fit. I love it in a very real way. Our life is for God, for sure. But there's something subtle and corrosive about this mentality. So, and I want us in particular to listen. By us, I mean you, because um, this church, man, you guys, um, this church is just so, I'm not pandering, just so filled with awesome, legit, sincere people. Um, I've just, I have never liked you people more. I just, every Sunday I'm like, man, they're great, okay? Some of you, I mean, some of you are full of it, but so many of you, <laughs> no, I didn't have anybody in mind, just in a group, you know, but... So many of you, I'm like, oh my goodness, these people are so legit to the core. They're so devout. They're so sincere. They're so reasonable and passionate and compassionate. Like you guys are so legit. You're not looking for a quick out or cheap religious goods. You're just legit, which is precisely why I think the life for God approach is the one we're most likely to fall into. Because the life for God posture, it seems so right and because of that, it is very often the downfall of the most devout and the most sincere, which is most of us. Um, 
a life for God. We should do that, right? Life for God. That's kind of held up as the ultimate Christian ideal. And as I said before, it's good. But what do we mean by that? Um, The heroes of the faith, you know, we talk about the people we sort of put up on a pedestal, the heroes of the faith, or they're almost always, you know, the pastors or the missionaries or the the vocational Christians, the professional Christians, I jokingly say sometimes. Um, They're the ones we sort of put on a pedestal, the ones who in our minds, they really lay it all on the line for Jesus. Um, But that misses a few things. Uh, First, and don't miss this. Christianity isn't designed to make heroes. It's designed to make saints. Our culture, our broader culture, is a hero-making machine. We'll make heroes out of anyone or anyone. If they've got a platform large enough, if they're good at anything, amazingly, if they're not good at anything, we will still make heroes. Social media is so weird. We'll still make heroes out of people. It's a hero-making machine. Christianity is not a hero-making machine. Life with Jesus produces saints, not heroes. Our fascination with heroes needs to be displaced um, from uh, our entire Christian worldview, okay? Um, second, people who do vocational ministry, um, they can do that for all sorts of reasons, good and bad. Uh, some selfish. We tend to put them on a pedestal, and I'm, I'm, I'm not sure we should put anyone but Christ on a pedestal. And and third, just think about this. Why would you assume, and maybe you don't, but why would you assume that obeying God's call to vocational ministry is any harder or any better than obeying God's call to be faithful in any other field or walk of life? Guys, if you're you're a Christ follower, like we're all doing ministry. All of us, we're all joining God in the renewal of all things. Why would the fact that I have an office at a church make me any better or any more holy or any more important than anyone else? Christianity is like an all-in kind of thing, right? There are no half measures the way God has set things up. And so I think we might have this disposition where we go, well, I'm, you know, if I'm honest, I'm probably only about 60% in, but that's okay. Like I, Aaron's a pastor. He's the one who has to be a hundred percent in. Um, so I'm pushing 70 actually at, at times. So that seems good. Um, those are like false categories that we have put in place. Um, not at all biblical. Uh, the call to all of us is to sell everything and go buy the field to get the treasure in the field. It's 100% all in for me. It's 100% all in for you. Any distinction that we find beyond that are ones that we've added and that are not found in Scripture. But because of this sort of life for God posture, it's like, well, that person, they're definitely living a life for God. One of the problems with this posture, though, is it has a tendency to place deeds or ministry work or whatever actually above relationship. It has a tendency to place the mission of the king ahead of the actual king. Um, again, St. Paul, such a great example of this. We just, we just read his words about how he considered all earthly things trash compared to life with Jesus. That does not mean that the apostle Paul wasn't on a mission. That man was absolutely on, hair on fire, no holds barred on a mission for the Lord. But his zeal and his passion and his love, first and foremost, was for Jesus not for the mission. Um, another quote from the book. It's a long one. Stay with me. It's important. Okay? Okay. 
Six of you. <clears throat> the first failure of life for God is that it puts God's mission ahead of God himself. Paul, the most celebrated missionary in history, did not make this mistake. He understood that his calling to be a messenger to the Gentiles was not the same as his treasure, which is to be united with Christ. His communion with Christ rooted and preceded his work for him. The danger of confusing these two things is very real. At the end of his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gave a haunting description of those who have accomplished a great deal for God but did not ultimately desire Christ himself. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The picture that God gives is there are people who will come to God on the final day and say, I lived my life for God. And he's going to say, I don't know you. The invitation was for you to live your life with me. Life with God. Life for God takes our fear of insignificance, which every single one of us has to one degree or another, and it throws gasoline on it. The resulting fire may be presented to the world as a godly ambition, a holy desire to see God's mission advance. But the kind of drive evident in the the kind of drive that is evident in the Apostle Paul's life, but when these flames are fueled by fear, they reveal none of the peace, joy, or love displayed by Paul. The relentless drive to prove our worth can quickly become destructive. All right, one more paragraph. Stay with me, all right? Gordon MacDonald called it missionalism. It is the belief that the worth of one's life is determined by the achievement of a grand objective. Before long, the mission controls almost everything. Time, relationships, health, spiritual depth, ethics, and convictions. In advanced stages, missionalism means doing whatever it takes to solve the problem. In its worst iteration, the end always justifies the means. The family goes, health is sacrificed, integrity is jeopardized. If you've been around church and churches for a few decades, you have a stack of stories where that's exactly what has happened. As people crash and burn, who are living these radical lives for God. Um, you've probably heard some of the numbers about pastor burnout rates. They're astronomical. Um, the last I heard was something like 1,500 pastors a week just call it quits in the United States alone. Um, and it's interesting, those, those burnout rates, and you can trust me on this, I've been, on, I've been to enough pastors' conferences and pastors' thises and pastors' thats to know that pastor types like me wear those statistics like a badge of honor. We go, oh, man, our job is so hard. It is. It's a hard job. I'm still in it, though. I know people are dropping like flies, but I'm still in it. You know, all for Christ, all for the glory of God. And we wear it as a badge of honor. But and I, I know you're not, you know, there's some pastors in the room, but I know you're like, why are you telling me this? And I'll, I'll save the longer version of this spiel for the next time I'm speaking at a pastor's conference. But it applies to so many of us. What those stats reveal about pastoral burnout is a chronic addiction to missionalism as opposed to having a deep joy in life with God. It's because they're living the life for God posture. That's why they crashed and burned. That's why so many believers, pastor, otherwise crash and burn. Okay, so uh, we talked about the life from God posture. Remember how it reduces God to a vending machine, right? It makes the whole relationship transactional and cold. 
And that leaves God saying, wait, wait, what? What about me? What about relationship? What about friendship? What about us? Well, that's the life from God posture. The life for God posture does the exact inverse of that. It makes us the vending machine. That's what life for God mentality does. Now we're the vending machine. And God simply comes to us and plugs in the code, maybe drops in a blessing and orders up whatever it is that he wants from us. That's the posture. It is cold. It is transactional. It is loveless and impersonal in the exact same way. It's just that instead of God being the vending machine and me being the extortioner trying to coax out of it whatever it is that I want, it makes me the vending machine and God the extortioner, the one who's just in it to get what he wants. If you buy into that lie, you are sure to burn out. You will crash and crash hard. And the more devout you are, the more committed to Jesus, the harder you'll crash as a result. And you'll be left feeling used and unloved. And what's tragic is, like, full stop, that's just not the message of the Bible. It's not. So one last time, the invitation from Scripture, the stories we looked at last week from beginning to end, is God going to unbelievable lengths to be with us. Not to use us or to be used by us, but to be with us. It's not a buffet, not a cookbook. He's not a vending machine, and he doesn't want you to be one either. What he wants is for us to join him in the renewal of all things. Again, it's our king in the kitchen smiling and saying, come on in, let's create something good together, something that will last, something that, that matters. Okay, I'm going to invite the band to come on up. Let me invite you to stand as you're able. And we're going to have just a time of prayer and reflection. And I want us to be, uh, as much as we are capable of in this moment, can we hold this moment sacred? Um, I, I do think the Lord wants to speak specifically to some individuals. Um, so let's just have a posture now where we are eager to hear from the Lord, where we expect him to move and to speak to us. I know we talked about two of them, but I want to zero in on the life for God posture. I just want to say this, and please don't miss it. Stay with me. There is a fine line as a Christian, someone who loves the Lord. There is a, such a fine line between, I, I just want to be used and on the other hand, I, I just feel used. I just feel used. There's a fine line between I want to be used and I just feel used. And as fine as that line in is, there's this just vast chasm between how we feel in either of those states. There's a really big difference between feeling like you're just another errand boy for Jesus Versus, on the other hand, feeling like you've been invited to be a band of brothers, you know? That's different between being utilized versus joining God in the renewal of all things. 
And what I'd like to ask you to do now, and you don't have to do any of these things if you don't, but if you're comfortable, would you just hold your hands out like this? Just a posture that says, Lord, I'm open to how you may speak or lead. A lot of people find it helpful to close their eyes. Uh, if you do, then great. But I just feel like the Lord wants to speak to some people. And not, not so much with the intellectual side of this, but, but to speak right to our hearts, to our emotions. And I, I want us to hear from the Lord that if we feel used by God, wants to hear from him just how heartbreaking that is to him. He died not so that he could use you as if he needed anything. He doesn't need us. He died so that he could be with us because he loves us. In this moment, we just allow the Holy Spirit to remind you how profoundly you are loved. And if you've sort of bought into that life for God posture and maybe you're getting close to burnout or you've been tired for a long time and you feel like you're going to crash. Just let the Holy Spirit speak to you to comfort you and say, this is, this is never about what you can do for me. It's about being with me. speaking to you about that, I just want to encourage you to kind of stay that course. I want to share just one more thought. When we were praying after last service, someone shared something that I felt was pretty important. Um, what he was saying is that growing up, and he said this was really shaped by the fact that he's a church kid, but he said growing up as a, as a church kid, he was all about doing things for the Lord. Um, but the life with God peace, he kept waiting for this wave of affection that would carry him into life with God, that the affection would fuel him into pursuing life with God. And he kept waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting, decades. And then finally he realized that for him, and it's not, this isn't true for everybody, but for a lot of people, but for him, actually, that order was reversed and he needed to spend life with God and from that the affection would come. The affection, the zeal, the passion, all the emotion that we feel like we're supposed to be caught up in. For some people they catch that wave and they ride it into life with God. For many and I think actually most, we live out of obedience and discipline into a life with God and out of that comes this deep, deep affection for God. So if you're waiting for affection to come and be your fuel, perhaps the Lord would say to you, just let obedience be your fuel. Come walk with me day by day, hour by hour. Let's do it together. The affection will come through the relationship.